following podcast is a production of Radio Felician, the voice of Felician University and the home of alternative rock done right. Download the Radio Felician app via the Apple app or Google Play stores or stream us 24-7 worldwide at RadioFelician.com. Radio Felician, the Falcon. Welcome to Sunday Storytellers, a Radio Felician podcast series in collaboration with Felician University Libraries. This podcast is an encore presentation of a series of radio broadcasts that aired Sundays on Radio Felician throughout 2019 and 2020. This episode originally aired on Sunday, October 27th, 2019. Sunday Storytellers Halloween Special. Perfect for Halloween season and beyond, delight in these tales of horror and the macabre, including true spooky tales from New Jersey folklore, all read by the students, faculty, and staff of Felician University. And now, Sunday Storytellers. Felician University Libraries presents Sunday Storytellers. Caitlin Kohosi, and I'm your host. This radio presentation is a collaborative audio project which brings together all members of our community. Felicia University students, faculty, staff, administration, and alumni, as well as members of the Felician Sisters are all invited to read short works for this program. These can be original to the reader or found in the public domain. Today, we will be sharing selections from five readers. Included in today's special Halloween week program, you will hear true spooky tales from New Jersey folklore read by our Radio Felician students. Our first reading today will be The Telltale Heart, a short story by American writer Edgar Allan Poe. The story was first published in James Russell Lowell's The Pioneer in January 1843. The Telltale Heart is often considered a classic of the gothic fiction genre and is one of Poe's best-known short stories. Our reader is Dr. Robert McParland, professor of English at Felician University and the author of 12 nonfiction books. Now here's Dr. McParland and the Telltale Heart. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous had I been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How am I then mad? Hearken, and observed how healthily, how calmly I can tell you this story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes remembers that of a, a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, now this is the point. You fancy me mad, but madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, and with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that so nightlight would shine out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within that opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well into the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, oh so cautiously, 
cautiously, for the hinges creaked, and I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon that vulture eye. And this I did for seven long days, every night just at midnight, but found the eye always closed. So it was impossible for me to do the work. It was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So, you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in on him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than I did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I, I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, <laughs> and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no, no, his room was black as pitch with the thick darkness for the shutters were close-fastened, through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it, I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily, I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening in the old man. He sprang up his bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still. I said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not the groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was a low, stifled sound that arises from the very bottom of the soul, when overcharged with awe, I, I knew that sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, while all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, Ah, oh, it's nothing but the wind in the chimney, it's only a mouse crossing the floor, or it's merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he'd been trying to comfort himself with all of these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain because death approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited very long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length, a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw with perfect distinctness all the dull blue with hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but an over-acuteness of the senses, and now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. 
It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates a soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained, and I kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, Amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer I refrained, and I stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart might burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would, the sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come, and with a loud yell I threw open the lantern and I leapt into the room, and he shrieked once, once only. In an instant I dragged him to the floor, I pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done, but for minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart, and I held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe those wise precautions that I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned. I worked hastily, but in silence. Now, first of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A uh, tub had caught it all. <laughs> and when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. And as the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door, and I went to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome, and a shriek, I said, well, that was my own dream. The old man I mentioned, he's absent in the country, and I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, oh, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasure, secure and undisturbed, and in the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat at the, upon the very spot beneath which reposited the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted familiar things, but ere long I felt myself getting pale and I wished them to be gone. My head ached. I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still they chatted, and the ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct, and I talked more freely to get rid of that feeling, but it continued and it gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt now I grew very pale, but I talked more fluently with a heightened voice, and yet the sound, the sound increased. 
And, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much, much as a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. Gasp for breath, and yet the officers heard that not. I, I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but this noise, this noise steadily increased, and I arose, and I argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why, why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to flurry by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all of this and continually increased. It grew louder and louder, louder, and the men chatted pleasantly. They smiled. Was it possible that they had heard it not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear out those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now, again, hark, louder, louder. Louder, louder, villains, I shriek, dissemble no more, I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, 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 it is the beating of his hideous heart. Hi, I'm Ash Listerman, and I'm a freshman at Phoenician University. New Jersey is one of the most haunted states in America, so it goes without saying that the state's most iconic roadway, the Garden State Parkway, is rumored to be haunted. If you ever travel the parkway at night around exit 82, you may get a visit from the Parkway Phantom. Sightings of the Parkway Phantom have been reported by many motorists over the years and various times of night, and they all tell the same story of seeing a tall man in a belted top coat, waving his arms back and forth like windshield wipers. Some describe the arm movement as looking like a football cheerleader. The origin of this story comes from a team of paramedics who reported about a rainy night when a man who was changing a tire on his car was hit by another car. He was hit so hard, he flew into the woods, and when the paramedics arrived, they couldn't find him right away. When they finally found him, it was too late. Weeks later, the paramedics report, traveling the same area of the parkway, suddenly they saw the phantom seemingly waving them down. By the time they arrived at the spot, he was gone. One of the paramedics noticed it was the exact same spot where the accident victim was hit. Our next reader is Jeff Shelley, Radio Felician Station Manager. Jeff will be reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. It is a narrative poem first published in 1845, noted for its musicality, stylized language, and supernatural atmosphere. Jeff added some audio trickery to make the atmosphere even more eerie. Here's Jeff Shelley's rendition of The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember. It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, 
Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, Soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mean or lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon the bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, Ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on this night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly, foul to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness, broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore Of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy into fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, 
swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee. By these angels he hath sent thee. Respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff, this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly I implore. Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign in parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. <laughs> I'm Gabby Geranio, and I'm a senior at Felician University. Students at Stevens Institute of Technology know about the haunted cave of Hoboken. No one knows why the Stevens family built this cave at the bottom of the cliff on their property in 1832. But locals and visitors could take the river walk and gawk at the Gothic-style gateway at the mouth of the cave entrance and partake of the natural spring water pooling near the cave floor. The cave became more of an attraction after the summer of 1841. It was then that two men discovered a young dead woman floating in the Hudson River near the cave entrance. The 20-year-old woman, Mary Rogers, was a sales girl at New York City Tobacco Shop. She was missing for three days. She was beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death. Many cigar-smoking reporters and newspaper publishers knew her personally and the publicity of the beautiful cigar girl increased newspaper circulation and caught the eye of a young author named Edgar Allan Poe, who used the incident as the inspiration for his story, The Mystery of Marie Roget. Meanwhile, the press, on a mission to find the girl's killer, harassed the girl's ex-boyfriend and suitors. The pressure may have been too much for her last boyfriend, Donald Payne. He committed suicide by poisoning himself. Mary Rogers' death remains a mystery. Many people reported seeing the ghost of Mary and Donald at the cave, and the site became a tourist attraction with ghost hunters visiting daily. The spirits may have resented the attention as the natural spring mysteriously became poisoned and the cave was closed off by the health department in 1888. It remains closed to this day. Next up is Terry McAteer, Associate Professor of Communications, reading a segment of his original work, The Blood is the Life. Evening. The campus is quiet. Students drifting to and from study groups and solitary sessions in the library. The trees hang heavy with their unfallen autumn dead leaves. The night breeze pushes fallen ones aimlessly across the quadrangle over the moon shadows of the branches. In the surrounding buildings, departmental offices are long closed for the day and their staff gone home. The professorial offices are mostly closed, too. 
Here and there, sprinkled across the campus, an office light is on. In one, a writer works feverishly to meet a publish or perish deadline. In another, a couple cheat on their respective spouses using the sticky, highly unromantic university-issue leather sofa. In the psychology building, in the corner reserved for the heretic fringe that still defends, however cautiously, often meekly, the thinking of Carl Jung, Mark closes the door of his office. The rubber soles of his running shoes squeak down the hall ahead of him and bounce back off the walls. He makes a note in his mind to get new ones. These are lopsided at the worn-down heels and the hole growing near the arch may have finally become too large. The guard making his rounds nods as they pass. Mark smiles genially back. All the guards know him and his periodic tendency to keep late hours. They speculate among themselves that since these late nights come in waves, there is some problem at home he doesn't want to face. Still, they don't spread any rumors. They like him because he is one of the very few who says hello when they pass. Mark leaves the campus through a seldom used side gate. Once in his student days, it had been the popular route through the cozy off-campus housing in private homes. Now that route and such housing have fallen into disuse as the oblong high-rises with their cinder block interiors have taken over the far end of the campus. These streets and roads are quiet, untraveled by the general student body. He loves the little, not well-manicured park near his house. Seasons permitting, he often sits at the edge of the water, even when he doesn't want to delay his return home. Now, approaching the corner where the park begins, he considers stopping. A figure darts into the bushes that border the park. Mark quickens his pace slightly, hoping not to find a rapist or mugger staking out new territory. There are muffled cries, the rustling of branches. He slows down, scans the park, finds a very tranquil scene. Not thinking about it, he steps deeper in. Here he can see almost the full pond, except where it curves into a little bay hidden by a growth of tall bushes. There he senses movement. Heart racing, moving closer, he sees two figures struggling in the darkness. He runs forward, grateful for the crunching of the leaves under his already noisy running shoes, hoping the assailant, if there is one, will hear the cavalry's arrival and run off. He pushes into the bushes, stumbles over two figures on the ground, one man, one woman, and lands just beyond them. The man, taken by surprise, snarls, growls, jumps away from the woman. Mark steadies himself. Remembering part of a self-defense class, he strikes a hopefully aggressive pose, crouching, knees bent, arms extended, muscles relaxed. He is ready to give or receive an attack. The man, making uncommonly animalistic sounds, lunges at him. Disturbed by the sounds, yet making a mental note to use them himself sometime, Mark now sees the creature better, especially its pallor and fang-like teeth. It no longer seems to him exactly a man. The basic features are human, genuinely human, but the sounds, teeth, and especially eyes are feral. It is a trapped, rabid animal. Carol pushes herself backward along the ground until she is sitting against a small tree. Barely aware that there are others near her, she slowly, fearfully brings her hand up to her throat and touches the skin on either side a little below the ear, where the jugular vein pulses. Her left hand touches blood and recoils. The right hand drifts over, replaces the left, traces two small, clumsy, ragged, parallel cuts, extending two inches downward toward her collarbone. She draws the right hand forward, stares at the fingers. She rubs the tips together, smearing more the red liquid she sees but cannot quite identify. Her mind backs off, retreats to a safe place, the place where she doesn't have to see what she is looking at or think what she knows. 
She brings the two hands together and rubs them against each other, spreading the not-yet-tried blood still more. She moves the right hand up the left arm and the left hand up the right arm as though washing them. She draws the hands across her chest, down and across her stomach, down the outside of each leg and back up the inside. Finished, she starts the motion again and again and again, each new time faster, with greater force, greater ferocity, until she seems to want to tear off the skin and rip out whatever is underneath. She stops suddenly, shifts from frenzied action to frozen calm. She opens her mouth slowly, produces no sound, freezes for a brief, dark moment. The moment passes. Her body moves again. A soft sob breaks out. More follow, each louder and more desperate. In the bleakness of her mind, however, the dark moment continues with no beginning or end. She sits back against the tree, lost to the fight still going on before her unresponsive eyes. Mark lunges, knocks the creature backward. As he touches its skin, an unnatural, soul-chilling cold tears through his body. The contact, fleeting, is broken. Mark wonders if it ever happened. The creature, stumbling backward, flails its arms quickly up and down, as though they were wings on which it were trying to fly away. It trips on a large tree root sticking out of the ground, falls into the shallow water at the edge of the pond. In the water, both its legs, the arms up to the elbows, and the torso up to the ribcage are submerged. Mark runs to the edge of the water, waits for it to emerge. For a moment, neither moves. Even the night birds are still, quiet, waiting, watching. The water ripples gently out from the creature. A few bubbles rise around the creature to the surface of the pond. It looks down in great wonder. Only Carol's sobbing breaks the calm. Mark, not certain of anything at this point, waits. More bubbles, bigger, quicker. A hissing sound as air passing from a punctured tire builds. Louder, louder. The creature, puzzled, fearful, looks from the bubbles to Mark. Its fear seems human. It begins to sink lower into the water. A wave of terror crosses its face. Mark steps into the water, stretches out his hand. The creature pulls its right arm from the water, shows Mark only a shirt sleeve dangling below the biceps. It screams, now neither human nor animal. The scream grows to a howl that pierces the air and carries to Patrick's ears miles away. Patrick raises his head, listens. He understands the cry, feels nothing. No anger, no sorrow, no need for revenge at the loss of one of his own. He can recall a time when such emotions meant something to him. But now they belong to another existence. Emotions have no place in a vampire. They are base. The creature's death howl invades Carol carries to the haven where her mind has retreated. The howl echoes there, cuts off her sobbing. Her mind eases cautiously forward, lets her focus slowly on the scene before her. A man stands just a step or two into the pond with his hand outstretched to another. This one sits very low in the water, further out than the other. He seems, as she watches, to get lower and lower. Carol knows she has waded in this water. It is only a few inches deep there, certainly less than a foot. This man, he does look like a man, is making a terrible sound. She recognizes the anguished cry of a creature trapped, probably dying. She feels sorry for it, yet wonders how it sounds so like an animal and looks so like a man. There is also a hissing sound. Maybe a gas jet somebody left on. She hopes whoever did will turn it off before a spark causes a great fire. 
Maybe all the bubbles coming from under the man-creature means that there already is a fire somewhere under him that could set off the gas. Very dangerous. She decides she doesn't like this and should go home where it is safe. Mark pulls his outstretched arm slowly back. The creature's head sinks under the water in a flurry of bubbles. The howl and the hissing stop. The bubbles, too, die out. Mark looks back to the shore. The woman is standing a few feet from him, watching, head tilted to the side, wearing the quizzical face of a child witnessing something fascinating and incomprehensible. He steps toward her, slips in the mud, falls face down in the water. Carol walks away from him and the pond and the park and anything else her shrinking mind might want to remind her of. Mark pushes himself up. Still slipping, crawling in the mud, he inches out of the pond. He looks for the woman. Hi, I'm Brendan McKenney, and I'm a freshman at Felician University. In Lambertville, New Jersey, if you explore the old abandoned Lambertville High School, don't make any jokes about Buckeye Billy. In 1935, Lambertville High School was playing the New Hope High School Buckeyes in a local football game. During the game, a Buckeye football player had his neck broken and died. New Hope High School has not had a football team since that date. But the story doesn't end there. When Lambertville High School moved to South Hunterdon in 1955, the old high school building became a nighttime hangout for many teens. One night, a group of boys ran out onto the old football field and told the story of how Buckeye Billy got his neck completely turned around by a Lambertville player. While the boys laughed and horsed around, one of them yelled out to the Buckeye Billy and challenged him to a race. At this point, an apparition in a football helmet and flaming red eyes appeared. The boys raced all the way home. That is all but two of them. They never made it home. The next day, their bodies were discovered in the old high school buildings. Their necks were broken. Our next reader is Robert Clarity, Vice President for Technology, Design, and Innovation at Felician University. He was previously the founding provost at Glasgow Caledonian New York College. While in that role, he was also the founder and CEO of MindAppSer Incorporated, a company which produced knowledge management apps. He has also published in many disciplines, including literature, engineering, chemistry, web design, and online learning. He has a PhD in modern letters from the University of Tulsa. Dr. Clarity will be reading Dracula, Dolmagra, a series of poems he wrote based on Bram Stoker's novel. As Dracula is never given the opportunity to speak in the novel, the sequence of poems represents Dracula's voice. The sequence confronts the issue of voicelessness and being an outsider. It considers the earthy ancient traditions of Dracula in the opposition to the Victorian middle class, which seeks to, and eventually does, destroy him, as well as the confrontation of a passionate poetic view of the universe versus the view of a market-based world functioning on desire. The first reading of portions of the sequence was at the International Poetry Readings in 1994. And now, here's Dr. Clarity. This is a sequence of poems called Dracula Domo Gras, which is Irish for To My Love. After reading the novel Dracula, and realizing that Dracula remains the consummate outsider, spoken about but never given the opportunity for a voice, the sequence of poems attempts to represent Dracula's point of view. In not taking his point of view, it's someone from a very traditional background, ancient ways. He's very much about his word, his world, his body, and this poetry sequence is an attempt to represent his voice that goes unspoken. Prologue. The sun throws a purple ring upon the depths of the Carpathians. This is my world. Centuries of exhaustion sequester sleep, enslaved to an eternal passion. This is my body. Captured in a vein of transcendent time and needing to transcend space. These are my words. This next poem is from Dracula's perspective on his removal from society and his desire to be a part of it. In the wildest parts of my mind, lovers dance through an intoxicating fog and smile in a confident belief which I have never known. For the tamest parts of my mind blend into edges of gray, and I don't understand what they say in spite of my polyglot mind. I want nothing more than to step into that fog 
take a hand and begin to centrifuge the cerebellum, to send the gray off to the edges, and to see what remains in the core. Sometimes I cry out in the wilderness, and realize the echo is gone, faded into the trees of mountainsides, while the sun betrays my deepest fear, and I lie there exposed, without the strength to crawl away. I may only lie and burn until darkness overtakes me. The next piece is entitled Wandering London. It's written in double voice, a style made famous by the Irish poet Desmond Egan, and I was inspired to use double voice in this, having, just prior to the initial writing of this, been the second reader for Desmond in his Holocaust of Autumn. Doing the second voice in this poem today is Patrick Clarity. In a city I do not know, the beads. followed by that large man of with the red hair and beard, banting in his Clontarf accent, I blend into the sick world of commerce of and finance, where anything, even blood and wine, far can be bought and sold of, of steam. steam. I am the mind-disordered exile, whistle. lonely at home, Moaning and alone out. within the unwritten borders In of agony. the settlement of the abandoned. Like the screen. Those without homes or Inside hope, of me. without places for them, Wandering. congregate beside me to lonely. wander streets, to pass My a moment prior to death, rise like steam. Each of the poems in the sequence is written in relation to some aspect of the novel rewritten from Dracula's perspective. In this poem, it's Dracula wandering the Victorian streets and living in a more metaphysical sense of passion against a commercial world of desire. On the streets of London in their little shops, purchasing wares and priding their instinct to be pleased and move on, the next desire is but a purchase away. Matter? It doesn't matter. If I have it, I'll be happy. If I don't, I must change. Machine made, find your size, it's you. But then again, it's everyone else too. On the walls of my castle, looking out, burning with the passion to be satisfied, and while I know the flame will not die, in flashes of satisfaction, I feel its warmth. I pursue the image, vague, undefined, but still calling me. Even when the shops are closed, I feel my passion burning. In writing these poems, I tried very much to look at the Irish connection out of Bram Stoker. In particular, the great Irish myth of Cahulun was based upon a hero who at the end of his days found himself losing his mind and running into the sea and fighting the waves, an image that was later taken up by Shakespeare and Hamlet with to take arms against a sea of troubles. Alone, alone, alone. I strive to end this tide of pain which washes over me, but each succeeding wave breaks in my face to recede, only to yield to the next. And when the undertow grabs at my feet, seeking to pull me under forever, I find I cannot stand firm in wet sand, feeling my body gradually giving way. In scorn of earth, I reject this weak sand. In scorn of earth, I reject this sea. I cry out above the breakers and the rocks, and I square my shoulders against the tide, reaching down deep, deep inside of myself but the next wave still breaks upon my face. At the end of the novel, we come to a climax when Dracula is destroyed by those pursuing him. From Dracula's perspective, all of his struggles for discovery in the poetry sequence, to find meaning to his words, to find meaning to his existence, come together in the poem, The End. The cover torn from my shell the wooden point at my breast and the mallet high like Thor's hammer above the setting sun, to hold on to one more second, one more second to hold immortality. But that second may not be, and I must return to dust, to surrender world, to surrender body, vanished in a word to become a tale, a story, a play in which I have no lines. As the wood pierces the skin, the agony shudders through long dead nerves, with the wood against the heart itself and the mallet coming down, the word comes to me, and I say... The original poem that led to this entire sequence is called Dracula's Farewell. There awaits for me a ship in Varna, and soon I must board to sail to England, where a new world, untouched by my kind, awaits on the other side of the storm. I can raise the wind and rend the clouds, set the stay sails and let a dead hand steer. I can change my form and control the beasts, but now I look plottingly towards eternity. Though our hands never latch together, 
nor did you ever feel my breath in your neck, let alone have you lain in my consecrated earth. I feel I have finally met my condemnation. I am condemned forever to be with you only in the parallel universes of what could have been, where space and time damn possibilities through the satanic vices of here and now. Forever in that parallel universe, where our fantasies wrap their bodies together, the world's gravity calls us back, from our own bodies, our own words. I can only hope the words survive, but they are phantoms of my phantom body, which for now could glut itself with blood, but would only be left passioning for more. A fog is settling over the harbor, and the rising sea calls away my timeless self. Perhaps in one moment we shared together, there was a microsecond which shall be an eternity. Hi, I'm Melanie Hill, and I'm a senior at Felician University. Many residents of Weehawken have experienced eerie feelings around the hundred stairs of death. They have also been called the haunted steps of Weehawken. The real name of the staircase is the Shippen Steps, and there are actually only 96 of them. They were built in the 1800s, and they span 250 feet to the top of the Palisades, and they enabled ship and dock workers who lived in Weehawken to get to and from work each day. In 1896, a man shot himself to death at the head of the steps. No explanation was given for his suicide. Around that same time, a pregnant woman, Anne-Marie Kim, fell down the steps and both she and the baby perished. This site is easily the nation's spookiest staircase. Sightings of the spirits of Anne-Marie and her child and the suicide victim have all been reported, so step carefully. Our final reader today is Allison Cole, librarian and professor at Felician University, reading The Misfit Ghost. Every boy with knowledge of adventurous literature, otherwise novels of action, knows of the phantom ship, the spook of the high seas. But it has not been known that ships themselves are haunted, and that in the service of the United States Coast Survey, there is a vessel now in commission that is by her own officers supposed to be haunted. Yet the Eager, a 140-foot schooner of the Coast Survey, is looked upon in the service as a very undesirable vessel to be aboard of. About her, there is an atmosphere of gloom that wardroom jest cannot dispel. Duty on board her has been shunned as would be a pestilence and stories have been told by officers who have cruised aboard her that are not good for timid people to hear. Officers have hesitated about telling these uncanny stories, but they have become sufficiently well known to make a billet to duty aboard the eager unwelcome among the Coast Survey men. The Mohawk was launched June 10, 1875 at Greenpoint and she was the largest sailing yacht afloat. William T. Garner, her young millionaire owner, was very proud of his new craft, and all the then leaders of New York society were invited to participate in the good time afloat with which her launching was celebrated. Commodore Garner, then but 33 years old, and his young wife entertained charmingly, and the trim, speedy mohawk was christened with unusually merry festivities. Soon after that, she was capsized by a sudden squall off the landing at Stapleton, New York, and six people were drowned like rats in their cabin and forecastle. Then the Mohawk was raised at a cost of $25,000 and purchased by the United States government for the service of the Coast Survey. Her name was changed to Eager, for Jack Tar is proverbially superstitious, and with the old name, it would have been impossible to ship a crew. Lieutenant Higby King describes his initial experience when he was assigned to duty on the Eager in this way. She had her full complement of officers minus one when I boarded her at Newport to complete the list. Every cabin was occupied but the port cabin by the companionway, and to that I was assigned. We had a jolly wardroom mess that night and I retired from it early, as I was tired by my journey to join the vessel. The others who were still at the table regarded my retirement to the port cabin in absolute silence, having bidden me good night. Their silence did not lead me to suspect anything, though I knew that the eager had once been the mohawk. My cabin door had the usual cabin lock of brass, and the porthole was also securely fastened. There could have been no one under the bed or sofa, as beneath each was a facing of solid oak paneling. I undressed lazily and left the light burning dimly in my bracket lamp. I tried conscientiously to go to sleep, for I don't know how long, with my back turned to the light. 
The noise ceased in the wardroom after a time, and I knew the others had turned in, but I felt unaccountably nervous and restless. I turned over and faced the light, thoroughly wide awake, and there in the single chair sat an elderly man, seemingly wrapped in deep thought. He was dressed in a blue yachting reefer and had a long gray beard. His hands were clasped in his lap and his eyes were downcast. His face was not pale and ghastly as the faces of ghosts are popularly supposed to be, but ruddy and weather beaten. I regarded him in scared silence for I don't know how long, though it seemed an hour when he or it or whatever it was disappeared. During that time, the ghost, and such I now believe it to have been, made not a motion nor did it say anything. Presently I looked again, and it was gone. At breakfast, the others watched me critically as I took my seat. I had not intended to say anything about my experience, for I thought then I had seen some sort of hallucination and strongly suspected that I was verging on insanity. Lieutenant Irving asked me if I had slept well. I replied that I had. Didn't you see anything, he inquired. I then frankly admitted that I had and described my experience. Then I learned that each one of the seven others present had tried the port cabin at one time or another, and each had seen the self-same apparition. It had acted in exactly the same way in each case, except in the case of Irving, who shot at it with his pistol when it immediately disappeared. Some of the others had been led by their curiosity to inquire if anyone lost on the Mohawk resembled the figure, and found that none of the unfortunate ones at all fitted the description. It had been dubbed by them the misfit ghost. The one experience was enough for me, and after that, I, by courtesy, shared the cabin of another fellow. Lieutenant Irving and others corroborate the story of Lieutenant King, and as additional evidence that the eager is haunted, Lieutenant Irving describes a New Year's Eve experience of the eager's officers. That is, to say the least, novel in the way of supernatural manifestations. It was a mess. The first toast, sweethearts and wives, had been drunk, as it always is, by Yankee sailors the world over on occasions of festivity. Everyone was feeling happy, or, as Thackeray has it, pleasant, when suddenly the sliding doors separating the wardroom from the companionway closed slowly with a loud squeaking noise. They had seldom been closed, and it took the entire strength of a man to start them from their rusty fastenings. Yet upon this occasion, they started easily and closed tightly while the officers jumped to their feet in breathless astonishment. Half a dozen men hauled them open in haste, but not a soul was behind them or anywhere about. It must be our old friend of the port cabin, suggested one, and in awe-stricken silence, the health of the misfit ghost was drunk. Hi, I'm Nicole Cacciatore, and I'm a junior at Felician University. The Seabrook Wilson House in Middletown, New Jersey, may be the most haunted house in America. The house, which has become known as the Spy House, is over 300 years old. A legend goes that in Revolutionary War times, the house was a tavern. The owner, Thomas Seabrook, was a patriot with the New Jersey militia. When redcoat British soldiers would come in for a drink, Seabrook would get them good and drunk and listened in on their war plans and military secrets which Seabrook would pass on to the colonial army. This is why it is called the Spy House. There have been many supernatural occurrences at the Spy House over the years. People have reported seeing the woman in white. When passing by the house at night, the woman in white may have been seen moving from room to room and then vanishing. She is said to be the spirit of the widow of a Revolutionary War soldier who stayed at the house for a time with her newborn son. She often appears to be tidying up the place. Another story is that of the ghost boy, who is the child of the woman in white. The boy tragically drowned in the ocean waters near the house. Visitors to the house experience being shoved in the back and also report furniture being moved in front of their eyes. People hear laughter like that of a playful child. Finally, the ghost of Thomas Seabrook himself is said to be haunting the house. Captain Tom, as he is known to the locals, is a very friendly spirit. Visitors to the house report that the ghost will follow them home and spend a few days with them. 
Locals even report hearing Captain Tom on their telephones. If you ever hear a strange voice on your phone while you are speaking to someone else, ask who it is. He may even say, it's me, Tom, and hang up. The Radio Felician students who read our true spooky tales from New Jersey folklore were Ash Listerman, Brendan McKenney, Nicole Cacciatore, Melanie Hill, and Gabby Geranio. If you like what you hear and would like to volunteer to be a Sunday storyteller, please email either Felician University Libraries at library at or Radio Felician at radiostation at felician.edu. Sunday Storytellers is produced by Jeff Shelley of Radio Felician and Allison Cole of Felician University Libraries. Our executive producer is Jody Shelley, director of Felician University Libraries. This podcast has been a production of Radio Felician, the voice of the Franciscan University of New Jersey. Visit us anytime at radiofelician.com. Want to send an email? Reach out at radiostation at felician.edu. Radio Felician, the Falcons.